Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 19. We continue to work our way through this Gospel account of Luke, and we ask for the Lord's blessing upon these final verses of chapter 19. We'll begin reading in verse 28, reading through the end of the chapter. Give your attention now to the Word of God. Luke 19, beginning with verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord, what an incredible day is described before us as you drew near to the gates of Jerusalem. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us 
hearts quick to receive your truth and that you would use your word this day to conform us more to the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, our text this evening marks the beginning of Luke's day-by-day narrative of the final week of our Savior's life on earth before his crucifixion. Remember, it was Thursday evening of the previous week when Jesus had gone to the home of Zacchaeus in Jericho. And now we come to verse 28, which picks up on Friday with Jesus traveling to Bethany. Now, according to John in chapter 12, Jesus goes into Bethany to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it was there he was given a banquet in his honor. And remember that it was at that banquet that Mary comes and anoints the feet of Jesus with a very expensive perfumed oil and then wipes them with her hair. It is most likely that Jesus would have spent Saturday, the Sabbath day, with them and enjoyed worship together. But his next stop is going to be Jerusalem. What I want you to notice before we go on is that more is changing here than just location. We can kind of follow Jesus from Jericho to Bethany and then the Mount of Olives and then Jerusalem. But more is changing than just where he is on the map. There is a defense definitive change taking place in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go all the way back to Luke 13 and verse 18 and see in the teaching of Jesus, particularly in the parables, that there is an emphasis upon what the kingdom of God is like. And so we have various parables in in chapter 17. If you look back just a couple of chapters in chapter 17 and verse 20. He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he proceeds to tell them and to teach them regarding that kingdom. When we get to chapter 18, you look at verse 17 and Jesus says, is pointedly directing his disciples. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. And then we have in chapter 19, as we've just seen, the parable of the minus, the king going into a far country, leaving money with his servants, to use, and to multiply. Why did he tell that parable? If you remember, chapter 19 and verse 11, he spoke that parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. 
the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. This is what it's like. This is how you enter it. It's not coming like you think it's going to come. But when we come to this final section, this final week in Jesus' life, there is a significant shift that takes place. The focal point moves from the kingdom of God to the king. Everything we're going to see from this point on is about King Jesus. The reason why that happens is because what Jesus had forbid his disciples and the demons to speak about, that he was the son of God, that he was the king, the promised Messiah. He is now ready for them to proclaim, to proclaim it clearly and to proclaim it loudly because as he described it, his hour had come. The king himself has come. And that king now appears before us in three rather unkingly ways. I don't know if that's a word, but it, it fits. The king has come. That king appears in very unkingly ways. The first thing that we see as you have your points in your bulletin is Christ as the king of peace. It would have been on Sunday morning that Jesus begins the two-mile journey from Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, to Jerusalem. Verse 29 in our text tells us that it was at the Mount of Olives. So this is opposite Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus often went to pray, about a half a mile away from Jerusalem. Jesus stops, and he sends two of his disciples to the next town. And he says, go there, and you're going to find a colt, a colt tied. And no one has ever ridden this colt. Now, both Matthew and John say specifically that it was a donkey. The colt was a young donkey. Now, that imagery here generates a number of questions. Number one, how did Jesus know the colt was going to be there? How did he know that it had never been ridden before? How could Jesus ride a wild donkey? You probably have not had the opportunity to ride a wild donkey. You might not be able to identify with that. I have had the opportunity to ride a wild pony, and it wasn't a fun thing. Or I should say, try to ride a wild pony. It was not easy, and it didn't last very long. How did Jesus ride a donkey that had never been ridden ever before? And why did the owners, at the simple word, the Lord has need of it, say, okay, take it, 
I mean, there are a lot of questions, and most of those questions can be answered by the simple fact that Jesus was the king. And he was not just the king of a a town or king of a country. He was the king of all creation. Everything. Everything was made by him. And he could control every, as Pastor Matt said this morning, every molecule of the universe was under the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most kings at least act like they can do whatever they want. And perhaps in many cases, that is pretty much the case. It's not always the case. Some of you may remember the story of an English king, King Canute, in the 11th century. And Canute got tired of all his courtiers telling him how great and how powerful and how wonderful he was. And so he said, carry my my chair out and set it on the shoreline. And he goes out and he sits next to the sea and he says, okay, you waves, halt right there. And of course, the waves kept coming and they covered his feet. Then they covered the base of his chair. Then his clothes were wet. And Canute stands and says, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. Only one is worthy of the name. He to whom all creation, heaven and earth and the sea, obey. He knew who the king was and who was worthy of that name. But Jesus was no ordinary king. He was the king of heaven and earth. And remember that scene when he was with his disciples in the boat and the storm arose and Jesus stood in the boat and said, peace, be still. And there was an immediate call. And even the disciples says, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey his voice. It was King Jesus. It was the one who is able, as we heard this morning, able to work all things according to the counsel of his will and to do it for our good. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. But there's perhaps a more significant question here. And it's this, why, why did this king choose a donkey to ride into Jerusalem? I mean, his hour had come. This was his moment of glory. This was his hour of recognition. You and I, if we were going to 
to choose an animal to ride in and, and reveal our kingship. Would we not choose some white Arabian stallion? Would we not like to thunder into the streets of Jerusalem in a chariot made of gold? But Jesus chooses a donkey, a wild donkey. Now what is that all about? Why would Jesus choose such an unusual means of making an entrance into Jerusalem. Now, there may be several reasons that we could mention, but primarily among them is this. He was not there to demonstrate his sovereign, irresistible power. He was there to demonstrate his humility and his meekness. Remember how the prophet Zechariah speaks? Back in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Zechariah writes words that would be utterly unintelligible to his audience. When he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. And then he adds this, lowly, riding on a donkey. Because what Jesus was demonstrating was his humility, his meekness, his lowliness. My friends, Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem that day to crush the opposition. He rode into Jerusalem that day to change the opposition. He came, as Luke says here, to bring peace. And do you notice, not just peace on earth, it's peace in heaven. Now what is What does that mean? That Jesus was bringing peace in heaven. It means that Jesus was taking rebellious, sinful, wicked men. And he was going to make peace between them and a thrice holy Jehovah God. Jesus was going to make peace between sinful men and the almighty God. Charles Wesley had a glimpse of that in his hymn, Arise, My Soul Arise. And in that final verse when he says, My God is reconciled. Reconciliation has taken place by the work of Christ. Listen to the way the apostle Paul puts it. In chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, in verse 14 and following, he says, For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace. He brought peace between Jew and Gentile. He broke down the middle wall of separation. He abolished in his flesh the enmity 
That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. My friends, that day, As the king of kings rode into Jerusalem, he did so to emphasize that he was there to make peace, to reconcile God to sinful men. Now, what does this say to us? Outside of the fact that he alone can make peace on earth and in heaven. Peace in this country is not going to come from constitutional amendments. Peace in this country is not going to come from the judicial branch. It's not going to come from the executive branch. There's only one place peace comes from. And that's when sinful men are reconciled to a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. He came to bring peace. And what that says to us is this. If we have the spirit of Christ in us, we're not going to live for fame, for fortune, for glory, for honor, for the applause of men. We're going to clothe ourselves with humility. We're going to clothe ourselves with gentleness, with peace, seeking peace with our brothers and sisters. We're going to put off anger and bitterness and pride, and we're going to put on love and mercy and grace. Remember those words from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 when Micah says, He has shown you, O man. What is good? What does the Lord require of you? Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. The spirit of Christ in us is going to work the same spirit in us as was in him. Now the problem is not everyone wants a king. Of peace. The Pharisees didn't want that king. They rejected, according to Psalm 118 and verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But they rejected it. They said, Lord, verse 39 and 40, tell your disciples to be quiet. We don't want to hear this. Rejoice greatly. We don't want to hear this king riding in on a donkey stuff. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones will begin shouting. Actually, I think that would have been a pretty impressive scene if it had happened, but Jesus did not do that. Well, let's move to our second point, Christ as the king of judgment. 
The Lord Jesus Christ came to bring peace by reconciling sinful men to a holy God, but not at the expense of justice and truth and righteousness. This king is clothed with justice and what is right. Now, what happens next, my friends, is simply incomprehensible. Because here we see this king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's hard enough to understand. But then, suddenly, we see the king weeping. The picture here is quite vivid. As Jesus begins his descent from the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, suddenly Jerusalem, the city of God, comes into view. And Jesus stops and bursts into tears. This is not a, a trickle or two, a tear or two that fell from his eyes. The word literally means sobbing. Weeping profusely. Jesus is broken hearted when he sees this city, the city of God. Why? What has happened that has produced this effect? The king has come. The people are singing, they're shouting praise, loud praise is filling the air. They're rejoicing. But the heart of Jesus is breaking. Why? Here is the city, as the Old Testament refers to it, the praise of the whole earth. This wonderful city, its magnificent temple, its teachers and, and, and people that taught the law and the prophets. Thousands upon thousands of worshipers line its streets multiple times a year. But as Jesus looks at that city and all its religiosity... He realizes all of it is about to fall under the judgment of God, the wrath of the Almighty. Notice what he says as he approaches this city. Now remember, these are the people of God. As Paul puts it, to them belong the adoption the covenants, the law, the promises. To them, Christ had been pictured in every sacrifice. To them, Christ had been portrayed in every ordinance. He had been preached to them by the the prophets and by the apostles. But my friends, they had hardened their hearts and they would not hear what God had to say to them, and they refused. They absolutely refused to believe 
in Jesus as the king. And they refused to turn from their sin. And they were facing the wrath of God. And that caused the Lord Jesus to weep. Let there be no doubt in your minds, as Ezekiel thirty-three eleven tells us, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He sent his son so that man, sinful man, if they would believe on him, would have everlasting life. He sent his son into this world. Jesus himself exclaims here, if you had just known the things that make for peace. It's not that they hadn't heard it. They heard it over and over and over again. But they rejected it. And Jesus says, if you had known the things that would make for peace, it could have been very different. But they would not listen. Now, brothers and sisters, you young people, listen closely. You cannot sit there day after day, week after week, hearing the word of God, reading your Bibles at home, listening to your parents, instructing you in the word of God, and ignore it without paying a terrible price. When you don't listen to God's word, when you turn a deaf ear, a cold heart, to the word of God, the judgment of God will come. You know, most of us know very well John three sixteen. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. How many of you know John 3.36? Listen to what John says in the same context. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. This is not Old Testament. This is New Testament. This is gospel. If you believe, you'll have everlasting life. If you do not believe, you will not see life. And not only that, but the wrath of God abides upon you. And that is what Jesus tells these people. One day... Absolute destruction is coming. Your city is going to be destroyed. You are going to be destroyed. Your children are going to be destroyed. But sometimes that part of the prophecy was still 40 years off. and would not come until 70 A.D. But the judgment of God had already begun to fall upon their hearts. They had heard time and time again the gospel truth and that they were being called to follow Jesus, to believe in him, but they had rejected that. 
And sometimes the judgment of God comes in ways that we don't even recognize. Jesus said, if you'd just known the truth, but now these things are hidden from your eyes. My friends, listen. Listen to the Word of God. Because when you harden your heart, when you turn a deaf ear, at one point, God is going to say, that's it. And he will hide his truth from your soul. Don't let that happen. Two things that I think ought to be very clear in our minds. Number one, have you known the time of your visitation? Have you known and tasted the free offer of the gospel over and over again? The word preached to you, calling you to follow, calling you to obey, calling you to repent and believe. Have you known that call of God upon your own heart to come? Come to me, Jesus says. Believe in me. Follow me. Secondly, perhaps we could think of it in these terms. Jesus looked upon Jerusalem with grief, with compassion. Have you looked upon the city of Carlisle with compassion? Have you looked upon the city of Mechanicsburg? Or any other town around. Have you looked closer to home? Parents, have you looked to the souls of your own children with compassion? Have you looked at your coworkers with compassion? Have you looked to your relatives with compassion? Tell them. Tell them about this king. Parents, do not neglect this responsibility. Tell your children who Jesus is and how much they need to put their trust in him. Well, lastly and very briefly, Christ, the king of prayer. On Monday, Jesus enters into the temple and what he finds is not pleasing to him at all. They're buying, they're selling, they're turning the temple into a marketplace, talking, laughing, carrying on. But my friends, that's not what the temple was supposed to be. Jesus says, my house is supposed to be a house of worship. It's supposed to be a house where people pray. And when you think about this house of God, I realize it's not the building. It's us, the people. We are the house of God. But every time we gather together as the corporate people of God, how do we respond? Do we come into the house of God, a house of worship, a house of prayer, with reverence, with godly fear, with awe? 
Is this a place where our children learn to praise God? Where people are taught the law of God, the commandments, the statutes, the judgments of the Lord, and taught to love them and follow them? Is this a place where as we gather together, broken hearts and broken lives are ministered to and healed, restored, and renewed. That's what this house is supposed to be. And one of the greatest ways we can see that happen is earnest, frequent, diligent prayer. It's not man-made. It's not generated by our efforts, by our intellect, by our gifts. It's not about coming to hear some great singer or great preacher. It's about coming to a house and worshiping God, revering God, exalting Christ, singing his praise, and hearing him speak. Through his word, we come every Lord's Day, every Wednesday night, when we can gather together and pray, we come to worship, we come to adore him. I don't know of any place that summarizes this better than the book of Hebrews and chapter 12 in the way that it describes it. Selected verses from chapter 12, beginning with verse 18, when the writer says, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, to blackness, darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet that caused the people to beg that they would not hear the word of God so great. Because it was so awesome. They didn't even want to be there. It was such a, a manifest of fire and thunder and lightning. It was a display of God's glory that was too much to bear. And they said, we don't want that. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't come to that. In verse 22, he says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. My friends, we've come to a very different place than Mount Sinai. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the very presence of Jesus. Now notice what the writer says in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. This awesome God, this Jesus of the new covenant, his king almighty, listen to him. Don't refuse. Don't turn a cold heart to him. In verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace. You hear that? This is grace, not law. This is grace. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably 
with reverence and godly fear. My friends, behold your king. Worship him. Adore him. Serve him with joy, with affection, and honor him. He is the king, the king of glory. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, how often our hearts are so bound to the things of this world that we cannot see the eternal glory that is all around us. Help us by faith to open our eyes and to open our hearts and to see Jesus, the King, and that we might worship and serve him with reverence and godly fear. Grant it for his sake. Amen. Let's take just a